Welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. And I'm Steve Cherubino. And I want to start off by saying thank you to Steve, because I've been wanting to do a podcast for two years at least, if not longer. And it's always been the thing that I've just, it's kept getting put off because there's always something else that's more urgent. And I was talking to Steve about this, and he's really encouraged me to to go ahead with this Um He's co-hosting it, which is great. He's got a ton of podcasting experience, so he's going to help me with some of the behind-the-scenes stuff and make the whole thing easier for me. So, Steve, thank you for giving me the nudge. Absolutely, man. Thank you for for doing the show. I'm excited to <laughs> to learn some stuff myself about mastering and uh, to see what we can do here. Yeah, that's cool. Because I mean, I was going to say that um, you know I'm a mastering engineer. I've been a pro mastering engineer for more than 20 years now. Steve is a a producer and a recording engineer. And I know that he actually knows a fair bit about mastering, but I've been talking about this stuff for so long now that quite often I forget that some people are new to the subject or they haven't heard me talk about certain aspects. So Steve is going to interrupt me every so often and get me to clarify something if I need to explain it a bit more or just ask questions about stuff that he's interested in. Definitely. And I'm going to interrupt you just for fun sometimes too. Good. Yeah. That, I, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but um, what we're basically going to start off with in this episode is we're going to just cover some basics about what is mastering. And we have all kinds of shows lined up to build upon what we do today. We're going to be talking about limiters, compression, EQ, gain. We all we have all these shows in mind. So uh, this is not a one-time affair. This is going to be a weekly deal. And we hope you guys are going to like it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm thinking that I have all kinds of ideas of what it would be great to do with the show if we can. You know, maybe we could have some news items sometimes. Maybe we could have some guests. We can maybe do an interview with either artists or other engineers. Um, you know, it, yeah, if if you guys like it, then tell us and we'll, we'll keep going. Um, exactly. But um, for now, yeah, let's get started. So the first question, Steve, is... What is mastering? Okay, so I have a short answer to that, then I have a longer answer, and I have a slightly more complicated longer answer. <laughs> so the short answer is mastering is making your music sound the best it can possibly be. And that means whatever it needs. It might need almost nothing. It might need radical surgery. You know, uh, if you have maybe a vintage track or something that's been pulled off some kind of old format, you know, there could be all kinds of things with the sound that that can be improved. And if we can do that in mastering, we will. So the longer answer is to say that mastering is like Photoshop for audio. Uh, you know, we've all taken a digital photograph, thought it was great. Then maybe you want to print it out and put it on the wall somewhere or post it up on Facebook. And you look at it and you go, actually, there's some things I want to change. You know, you maybe want to take out some red eye. You might want to change the crop. You might want to adjust the brightness and the contrast. It's exactly the same with audio. You do the best possible recording and mix that you can. And then you come to listen to it and you're going to release it, upload it somewhere so that people can hear it. And you think, ah, oh, there's still some things that maybe I want to change. So there might be clicks and thumps that you might want to take out. That's like maybe taking out the red eye or, you know, using the clone tool to remove a power line from a, a landscape photo if you took one. Uh, you might want to uh, change the, the fade in and out um, or do an edit, which is kind of like cropping an image to get a really nice aspect ratio for a, for a photo. And you might want to adjust the, the dynamics 
the the relationship of the loud and the soft passages in the music or the overall EQ, how much treble and bass there is, or maybe you have some problem frequencies in there. And that's kind of like adjusting the color balance or the brightness and contrast of a photo. So mastering is like Photoshop for audio. And that's my longer answer. And the slightly more complicated version of that is to say that actually mastering is kind of like putting on a photo exhibition. You know, you have a you have a room or a couple of rooms, you have to choose the photos. I mean, that's usually done by the artists in terms of music. They choose the songs and probably the order they go in, but you're the one who has to hang the photos. You're the guy who has to put those songs into a sequence to create maybe an album uh, or a playlist, whatever it's going to be. So as a mastering engineer, you're choosing how loud the songs should be. Um, that could be like how, how big a print of a photo is going to be on the wall. You choose the gaps in between the songs, which is kind of like, you know, the spacing of the, the photos around the room. And then you're choosing, like I say, the the balance and the, the, the EQ and the dynamics of the songs, which is kind of like uh, having an influence on how the photos maybe even are printed. I guess that's where the analogy with putting on a photo exhibition changes, because in that case, you probably get a finished photograph from a photographer as a, as a finished product. But as a mastering engineer, you could get in there and start changing some of the aspects of the, the photographs to get the best possible uh, results, the best possible impact. You might choose maybe to have one of them printed as black and white as opposed to color or to, to change the saturation of the colors. Certainly you can change the, the mount of the photograph, the frame, you know, is it going to be, is it just a simple black border around the image? Is it going to be, have a big, huge colored frame around it? And that changes the way that people see a photograph when they, when they come to it in an exhibition and changing things like the gaps and the, the levels of one song in comparison to another, or how much bass or how much treble one song has to another on an album changes the way people hear them when they, when they listen to it, you know, changes the, the listening experience. Yeah. That's a great analogy. I, I never thought of it that way, but you're, so you're essentially getting the songs slash pictures ready for presentation to the public. One of the things that you mentioned though, about an album, because there's not a lot of albums coming out these days, especially in certain genres like EDM and stuff. It's, it's all singles. I, obviously the mastering engineer doesn't have the job to do that there. Well, I, so I'm going to interrupt you there and say, I think you do because you're still, you still have in mind everything else that's out in the world. Right. Um, even, even if you're mastering a single, I mean, it's harder as a mastering engineer to master a single song. It's, I find it much more interesting and satisfying to master songs as a group. Um, and I still do a fair number of albums, actually. I mean, it, you uh, know, I, I guess people are not, maybe maybe they're not buying albums, maybe they're not listening to albums, but I think artists are still creating music, maybe not so much in EDM where it's very much about, you know, you release a song and it goes out into the clubs and you, you see what the response is. And then later, maybe an album gets put together um, or it goes into a compilation. But it's, even there, you have you have compilation albums, you know, the, the Ministry of Sound and all these different people who put all these different collections of EDM tracks together um, or, or, you know, put, put together a mix of, of a whole sequence of, of songs. Um, but even when you're mastering just one of those single songs, you st I, as a mastering engineer, still have in the back of my mind how other stuff in that genre might sound, how other artists... Because one of the things about mastering when you come to it is you... It's interesting because you have to be... 
you have to be quite arrogant to do the job, right? Because you're basically coming, if somebody might have been recording and mixing a song for months or even years in some cases, and you kind of come in right at the end and go, yeah, but this would have been better if you'd have done that, and I think you should change this. Um, so that's kind of quite a an arrogant position to be in, but you have to do it in a humble way. You have to, uh, you know, the first thing you need to do is listen really carefully and try and appreciate what it is that the artist was trying to achieve and to hear all the good things, all the, all the success that they have had, and then make sure that whatever you do that, in your opinion, improves it, doesn't take it too far away from their original vision. So you're trying to get the best out of it with an empathy for what they wanted to achieve. Right. I would love to know the history of this because I can only imagine it has evolved to that point, like you said, where the mastering engineer does add a little of what he thinks is needed. Whereas I can only imagine in the beginning, you know, there was no loudness war, but the mastering engineer was the guy who, look, here's all the songs. They need to sound good together. Get all the levels so their volumes are the same. You know what I mean? I picture it being like almost a menial job where somebody takes a finished product that came from the mixer, and then it's his job to just make sure all the volumes are the same. And I could only imagine that the mastering engineer started putting more and more of their own stuff in, like, well, I think this would have needs more bass, and I think this needs to be have more here. And then mastering came into this black art where the mastering engineer knows what the song needs now. Am I right on that, or...? No, you are, you are right. It has evolved over the years. In fact, um, I was recently uh, lucky enough to meet Ken Scott, who was one of the original Beatles engineers. Yes. Um, and he's written a fantastic book that I would recommend to anybody listening to this podcast called Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. And one of the things that he mentions in the book is the fact that when he started training at Abbey Road, the first thing you did was work in the tape library where you learned to label stuff up, uh, what the archiving system was, what the different formats were, the, the protocol. The second thing you did was work in mastering. Before you ever got anywhere near a studio, you had to supervise making test pressings, right? Um, uh, the acetate discs that they would make for because there were no cassettes back then, there right. were no CDRs. Um, so you'd have your own tiny little personalized acetate cut of whatever was recorded because the limitations of what you could technically put on that format were far more restrictive than what you could put on a tape in a studio. So these days we have CDs where anything you record in a computer or on any system can go on the final format right. exactly as is. It doesn't, strictly speaking, need any optimization for that format. Whereas with with vinyl or, or acetates, you know, you have to you have to be careful with not too much stereo information in the bass. The levels couldn't be too high. Right. Not too much sibilance. All of these different different technical requirements. So you learned all of that first, and then when you finally understood the limitations of the format. Then you could go into the recording studio and actually start putting mics up and, and recording the material. So I found that fascinating because that's 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 backwards on the way that it's perceived these days. Absolutely. Um, and it's and one of the interesting things that he said when I when I met him was that when, of course when these guys started they were like oh this is fantastic they had all this power they were cranking up the bass and cranking up the treble and all the rest of it. And then they would take it out into the real world and listen to it. And it sounded terrible. Right. Um, and then they would come and realize that actually you just needed a tiny little bit here and a tiny little bit there to, to make things, to get things right. Was the mastering, was the mastering engineer's job always to add a little bit or was, did he have a humble beginning? Even back then they were, well, I mean, you, you had to optimize the levels. 
I mean, you wanted to optimize the levels from song to song so that you had a consistent listening experience, you know, so that the person listening, that so they didn't have to leap up for the volume control. That's from an artistic point of view, but also because of the limitations of the format, they had to choose the best possible to get the signal to noise ratio um, as wide as possible, but without causing any distortion. I see. So they would be optimizing levels. And yeah, the way he tells it, you know, at Abbey Road back then in the 60s, a cutting engineer was already little tweaks to, and I've seen, you know, you, you see it on the old reels that come from back in the 60s and 70s. Some some of them have notes marked up and somebody will have written, because it would have been done for an album, especially it would have been done in real time then when you're cutting to a lathe, you know, you would play one song from, you'd have, you have two paths, two signal paths going through the lathe. So you set one up while that one's playing playing down to, to the for the cut, you've got another signal path where you're setting up for the next song and then you switch them over in between and then you go back to the other one with the next song, wow. alternating between the two and doing it in real time, right? Because you could there was no uh, there were no d- doors to line tracks up and move them around and copy and paste like we do these days. So they were like the original DJs, like mixing <laughs> mixing one song into the other. Yeah, well, and and if there were, if there was a crossfade needed, you know, they would they would be doing that in real time. Yeah, and so you would see on the tape boxes the handwritten, you know, it would say plus three dBs um, at hundred hertz or what. And you know, back, I mean, it was limited because back in the day they would only have maybe three frequencies that they could influence anyway, right. if they were lucky, right? Because so, they would have fixed frequency EQ pots, um, you know, just like they only had really limited pan controls and all the rest of it. But I mean, even when I started training in 1994. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff over the next few weeks. But when I started out, it was basically EQ and limiting because the loudness war hadn't really kicked off. So the levels didn't have to be as high as they do these days. Um, And most stuff that you were mastering came from a professional recording studio. So the dynamics were already in great shape, probably didn't need any more compression. So it was just a question of balancing the levels and the EQ. So, I mean, I my whole approach is very minimal, and we'll kind of talk about that as we go forward. Um, and that kind of comes from, from, yeah, that minimal place. Whereas nowadays, you know, you have all these tutorials on the internet where you see somebody with seven or eight mastering plugins stacked up on right. on the output bus. And, you know, I, I always think, I bet it would sound better if you just turned all of those off. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, you know, it's so, so yeah, it has evolved. And, and I think it's gone too far the other way, personally. I don't think the master, I don't try and put my own stamp on, on music when I master it. And I don't think that's the role. There are mastering engineers that, you know, you go to them, you go to them for the sound. Right. And they have their, their particular setup of gear, their signal path, and they, they stamp their signature sound on whatever you send them. And, that to me is not what it's about. For me, it's a like I say, it's listening, having empathy with what the artists and the original recording engineers wanted to try and achieve and just make sure that it gets as close as possible to where they wanted it to go. That's good that you do that. It's the noble approach. It's it's much more British, don't you know? <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I actually, I don't know. There's, because you, I think the same thing applies in mixing, right? You you have you have the, the superstar mixers, the you know the the big names who who have their you go to them for the sound that the and then you have other mix engineers who yeah a, a similar approach it's all about capturing the the sound of the original artist or the band um you know and and conveying that as faithfully as possible so i think i think it is possible to, uh, i think both 
both approaches are valid. Yeah. Both of them, both of them work. But yeah, for me, the kind of I always think I I as a mastering engineer, I want to be invisible. You know, I want to make it sound better without anybody knowing how I did it or even that I was there. Right. Um and yeah, and that kind of I think that goes right back to those original days with the, the much more minimal approach um that you were talking about. That's cool, man. Now you uh you also mentioned that there's five essential tools that people need to use or that you use for mastering. Do you want to start to go over them or yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff that you can do in mastering. But for me, there are five real essentials. The first one is gain, which just literally means, you know, turning the signal up or down. So you could use a fader on a mixer, you could use a trim plugin, maybe there are gain controls within other plugins. So just controlling the overall level. Second one is EQ, equalization you know roughly speaking how much bass and treble there is but these days you can you can really go in with surgical precision and either enhance or or uh pull back certain frequencies to to get the the best possible tonal balance of the music yeah compression for for controlling dynamics um like i say when i first started out i wasn't using any compression at all i had a limiter in there to just to control the peaks um these days i usually use some compression, but in a pretty subtle way. You know, I'm aiming to be pretty much invisible with it. Okay. Limiting, which is just to control the peak level. And then finally, uh, metering. Oh. Um, so these, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about how it sounds. But especially if you're interested in in experimenting with mastering yourself and and uh, playing around with this stuff, I think as a learning tool, having an analyzer so that you can see the EQ shape of the music that you're working on and some f- a level meter of some kind to give you some feedback on the loudness. So not peak level meters that you get in all of the DAWs. Uh, that's pretty much useless for judging loudness. And we'll talk about that more another time. Um, you need something, either an RMS meter, or uh, I like the old-fashioned VU meters, the needle-style meters. What is um, what is an RMS meter? Okay, so RMS stands for root mean squared, um, which is, it's just the name that you give to the way that you calculate this particular, it's basically the same as what a VU meter shows you. Um, VU meter is the one that goes from kind of minus 20 to plus 3, and uh, zero is kind of in the middle, and it turns red for the top end. Right. You you probably you know you see them on uh, things like mic pre's, and quite a few mixers have them. Um, and and VU and RMS are they're almost the same thing, and they're a pretty good judge of loudness. It turns out measuring loudness is is actually pretty tricky, um, and this is something we'll talk about in a in a future show. But both of those are pretty good indications of loudness and an even better one is is recently there are actually dedicated loudness meters and there is an internationally agreed standard method to measure loudness hmm. um and these new so you you measure it using a loudness unit or an lu um which is the same as a db but uh it reflects the fact that our ears are have different sensitivities to different frequencies depending on how loud the music is. So huh. that's what that's where it gets complicated and interesting yeah, yeah. And, and we'll we'll come back to that. Okay. But um the so yeah, metering is kind of key. And what I thought we would do over the next few shows is tackle each of those stages 
uh, in turn, but I'm going to do it backwards from the end of the chain. So the final stage of the chain is what goes down in, uh, into the master, um, and therefore you're looking at the metering. Okay, so we'll start with metering, then we'll do limiting, compression, EQ, um, and gain, which is will branch out in the gain subtopic into the whole loudness issue and all the rest of it. Why go um, backwards? Okay, because, like I say, I'm a minimalist in my approach to mastering. And here's the thing. So let's say you send me a song to be mastered. I put it up. It sounds great to me, but I need to adjust the level a little bit. So and my ears and the meters are telling me that. So I tweak the level a bit. I listen again. It sounds great. It doesn't need anything else. doesn't need an EQ, doesn't need compression, doesn't need limiting. I'm done. That song is mastered. Even though I didn't touch it, all I did was adjust the level. You know, mastering is the process of listening and ensuring that the music is the best it can be. And if it's already the best it can be, which is quite possible if you get it, you know, I mean, certainly from some of the best studios in the world. And actually, I've heard, you know, stuff that's come out of people's home studios that I just think that sounds great. You know, I, I don't want to mess with that at right, all. Right. So that encourages that minimalist approach. Now, more often than not, once you've adjusted the level, you listen and you go, okay, well, now I hear it like that. It probably could stand a little bit more bass or it sounds a little bit harsh. So I'm going to ease back. Those. So that's when you get into doing some EQ. And once you've tweaked, maybe once you've boosted that level up, you're happier with the tonal balance, but suddenly, you know, the kick drum is sticking out a little bit too much. So then you think, okay, well, I'll, so I'll just use a little bit of compression to help manage those dynamics slightly. Um, but if you don't need to use those things, you won't. I see. So I think understanding what the final goal is going to be and working back through those processes, I could start talking about stage one, which is gain. But until we've talked about how you measure loudness and what your loudness should be and how you... Because in the next show... My plan is we're going to talk about the three M's of mastering, which is metering, monitoring, and mindset. So monitoring is how you listen to the music. Uh, so speakers, the room, headphones, if you use them, do you have any acoustic treatment, all that kind of stuff. In mastering, it's absolutely crucial that you get that to the highest possible standard you can, because let's say your speakers have no bass, you're going to be tempted to pile in loads of bass. And then when you take it out into the world to other speakers that do have plenty of bass, it's going to sound way over the top there. Exactly. So you have to hear the music as accurately as you can when you're mastering. So the monitoring is crucial. Metering is crucial because it helps you train your ears. It gives you a reality check because we all you know, suffer from fatigue when you've been mixing or mastering for long periods of time. And then mindset is all about how you approach it, what your goals are. And, and you know, part of that is this minimalist idea that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, my belief is you do the minimum that you can to achieve the result that you want. Does that make sense? Absolutely, man. And that's going to be show number two, next show. Next show, the three M's of mastering. Well, a lot to look forward to. I can't wait, man. Me either. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I hope you guys listening feel the same way. Um, if you've enjoyed this, and you'd like to join us for the next show, please do. Please head over to iTunes and subscribe. Where else is this going to be available? We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher Radio. And any podcasting app you get in your Android phone will be in there. And we're going to try to make it really hard to miss us. Excellent. That's, that's our goal. 
So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, let us know what you think. Leave a comment or a review. You can find me on Twitter at Ian Shepherd. We're going to be everywhere. So yeah, just tell us what you think and, and say hello. And you can find me on my EDM podcasting network at edmr.com. That's edmmr.com. Hit me up anytime. Okay, great. Well, I've enjoyed this. It's been good fun. And I'm looking forward to the next show. Absolutely. Me too, Ian. Thank you very much. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for listening.